All right, as Pastor Marvin said, we're continuing on while you are waiting, Titus chapter 2 today, verses 9 and 10. How many of you, you, many of you I know are from countries outside of the United States, and how many of you have had an experience where you have been trying to communicate with someone of a different language and culture and something was lost in translation? Some of you have that experience, yeah? You're trying to say something, and you're looking at them, or they're trying to say something to you, and you know the message isn't quite getting through. Nowadays, you can do things like pull out Google Translate, and you have to hope that your message is getting through, and we have some advantages. But a lot of times, when you're trying to communicate with someone from another culture, something sometimes gets lost in translation, one, speaking of that Google Translate, one, um, one gentleman was trying to figure out exactly kind of how accurate uh, those translation softwares are and what gets lost in translation. So this is the experiment he did. He took a common song and he inputted it in English, had the software translated into German, and then asked the software to translate it back into English to see if anything got lost in translation. Well, the song he picked was Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Uh, And many of you may know the song. If you've uh, been to a baseball game, the seventh inning, you sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, Take Me Out to the Crowd, Buy Me Some Peanuts and Cracker Jacks, I Don't Care If I Ever Come Back. So he puts this in, translates it into German, comes back into English, came back just a little bit different, um, a little more militant. The translation software came back with, execute me to the ball play. Execute me with the masses. Buy me certain ground nuts and cracker stack fusig. I'm not interested if never receive back. Let me root, root, root for the main team. If they do not win, it is dishonor. For there are one, two, three impacts on you at the old ball play. So maybe not too different, but a little different. Something gets lost in translation. Sometimes we come across passages of the Bible that can appear on the surface either to have little meaning to us today or something that we just cannot understand. Something seems to be lost in translation. The verses we're about to read can fall into this category. At first reading, they can be confusing. Uh, They can seem like they don't relate to our current situation. And something, when people read them, can often be lost in translation. So I'm going to read them in a moment. Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. As we said last week, this is really one thought, verses 1 through 10. And uh, Paul is talking to Titus and giving some instructions of how the people of Crete are supposed to live. And so last week, we're taking it as two messages. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 8. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. So last week, Paul had words to say to older men and older women. And we said last week, that is not an insult. Older was not an insult in Paul's day. It should not be an insult in our day. It was people of wisdom, people who have gained experience and stature, who have things to contribute. He had things to say to older men and older women, talking about them being mentors. And then he had things to say to older, uh, younger men and younger women who need a posture of learning and a posture of being mentored. 
So this week, we're looking at a different group that Titus is talking to. And so Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says this. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The passage that we're looking at this morning, we're using the ESV, which is the English Standard Version, which we often use um, as a part of our church services. I think it's a good translation. It's a pretty literal translation. And it uses the word bondservants. But many of your translations that you're reading out of, or maybe you heard this passage in the past, and it uses the term slave. And when you put that term slave in this passage, here's where I say something I think we risk gets lost in translation, and sometimes it can seem like you come to a passage like this and you say, how can this possibly be relevant to me, to my life, and to 21st century life? The verses are used by some uh, to say that the Bible condones slavery. Uh, You may have heard this. Maybe people that you know have said, doesn't the Bible condone slavery? And they will point to verses like this in Titus chapter 2 to say, look, the Bible condones slavery. How can you follow that book? How can you ask me to read and follow a book that condones slavery? Our ears don't like the sound of what Paul is saying here. Now, bond servants makes it sound a little bit different. We're like, okay, what is that? But when the word slave is in there, our ears don't like the sound of what Paul is saying here. The question comes up, is Paul condoning the practice of slavery? At the very least, how could he speak to the slaves need to be submissive without speaking about the injustice of slavery? Those questions come up. Is this what Paul is doing in this passage? Is he condoning slavery? Well, in order to look at that and answer that question, we have to keep in mind a statement that was often drilled into my head when I was in seminary. Uh, by my professors. It's a three-word statement that many of my professors would say over and over again, and the statement is this, context is king. And that's what they would constantly say over and over again, context is king. When we would raise issues about hard things in Scripture, we would look at difficult issues in Scripture, often the response would be, context is is king. In other words, of all the other things that you have at your disposal, of all the other ways you might try and figure out a passage, the most important thing you can do is understand the context. And that context happens in two ways. The cultural context of a passage of Scripture, but also the larger context where that passage falls in the Bible. Anytime we read Scripture, we're reading it as people outside of the context and culture that the text was written. We must be careful not to project our modern mindset on an ancient text. We must understand what the text meant in its original context and then apply it to our lives. So with that in mind, when we take context into consideration, two important items emerge that might initially be lost in translation. The first one is this. Slavery in first century Greco-Roman world looked different than the African slave trade, which we think of when I say the word slavery to you. Because I think when I say the word slavery in a 21st century American context, the first thing that comes to our minds 
is the 17th, 18th, and 19th century uh, African uh, slavery uh, movement that went on in the United States and throughout the world, really, uh, with the slave trade. What Paul is talking about, what Paul is, has in this word, is very different. Slavery was more like indentured servitude. So let me give you a little context by a historian named Murray Harris in his book, Slave of Christ. It's a first century Greco-Roman world. He says, the Greco-Roman, uh, he says that in the Greco-Roman times, number one, slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by race, by speech, or by clothing. You couldn't walk down the street and say that person's a slave and that person's not. The, the slavery we're used to thinking of in our own minds is a race-based slavery uh, that was not what was going on in first, there was a distinction there, was not what was going on in first century Greco-Roman world. They looked and lived like everyone else. They were never segregated off from the rest of society in any way. Number two, slaves were more educated than their owners in many cases and many times held high managerial positions. Number three, from a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers. And uh, therefore, they were not themselves usually poor, often accrued enough personal capital to buy themselves out. Number four, very few persons were slaves for life in the first century. Most expected to be manumitted about 10 years Uh, by about 10 years or in their early 30s at the latest. So there's the difference in understanding when Paul uses, and that's why I think many translations will use the word bondservant, because the word slavery is so emotionally loaded for us that we don't understand that it may is not a one-for-one correspondence that's going on here. Uh, in fact, the slavery that we're talk, that we often think about the enslavement, Paul very specifically talks against in 1 Timothy 1 through 10. He talks against enslavers, putting them in a category of people condemned by God. And the literal translation of that enslavers is someone who takes captive in order to sell them into slavery. And Paul puts them in a list of people expressly condemned by God. It should also be remembered that in the 18th and 19th century, it was Christians who led the anti-slavery abolitionist movements grounded in Scripture. So there is a difference in cultural context that we're talking about. But we also need to remember that Paul does speak up about the injustices of the system when we take all of his writings into account. In a passage in Ephesians where he's talking to bond servants again, and he says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart. But in the very next verse, later on in verse 9, it says, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he is both master and of you, both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with God. In other words, Paul says, I'm not only talking to them in this role as society, I'm also talking to you as masters. You should not be threatening to them. You should not be mistreating them. You need to treat them the way that God treats you without partiality. This would have been an extremely counterintuitive statement for Paul to make in his society and his world. But it was very in line with the message of Christ because Paul will write later in Galatians, 
that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female when it comes to Christ, that these barriers are broken down. So you who have a slave or an indentured servant or a bond servant, you cannot hold it over them like you are somehow better than them, more worthy than them, greater than them, because in Christ there is no partiality, and you ought to treat them in that way. And then once again in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he's, he's talking to bond servants. Where you were bond servant, you were called. Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. In other words, don't, if you can gain your freedom, if you can buy it, if you can get out of it, of course get out of it. Don't stay in that situation. But here's what's going on. Paul is writing a letter to Titus in the first century church, a brand new church, a very young church on an island of Crete where slavery exists and where there are slaves who are now a part of this new church. So these people are coming to the church and when they come to the church, their status and class does not determine, does not carry over inside the church building. Because when they come to the church and they come in that church building, the ground is level such that a slave or a servant may be an elder in that church over their master. The church is level, but Paul is writing to this group of people and he's writing to people who in that society are bond servants. So Paul has words for them too. In fact, I think it would be unkind for Paul not to speak to them to act like they don't exist, to act like God has nothing to say to them. Instead, he says, here, God has something to say to you in your station, in your role, in where you are. And he speaks to them. Now, we need to take in the cultural context and the biblical context. I don't think the Bible in any way and in any place condones slavery. In fact, it's very opposite. In the early, uh, one of the uh, books in the uh, the letters that Paul wrote is Philemon. Writes this letter to a slave owner uh, about his slave and says, you ought to free him now in Christ to do the work of Christ. There were American slave owners uh, in the 1800s that did not want their slaves reading Philemon because they felt it, taught and that they would learn and that they would learn that the Christian principle would have them to release them. So they kept them or tried to keep them from reading this book. Uh, God's greatest work in Scripture and in history is about deliverance from slavery. In the Old Testament, the Exodus, deliverance from slavery. In the New Testament, the cross, deliverance from the slavery of sin. God is a God of deliverance and of freedom. If you want to take one sentence out of Scripture, out of context, you can twist it in such a way to make it sound otherwise. But I believe when you take the whole cultural context and context of Scripture in hand, the Bible is very much saying the opposite and is not condoning it, but is condemning it. Just like today, it happens. You can take one sentence, one word, one tweet, and twist it and make it sound however you want. One headline, but context is king. If you want to know more about that, you're you're curious more about that, one of the commentaries that we've been using on our uh, ministry team to 
helpful on this book is Tim Chester's Titus for You. It's very readable, very approachable. So if you want to go a little deeper into the book of Titus, uh, that's one recommendation I have for you. The other is if you're doing the Bible project, reading through the Bible, or if you've been doing those Bible reading plan, the Bible project, uh, they, they have videos at the beginning of every book that give you a summary of what's going on. There's an eight-minute video at the beginning of Titus. Um, if you get the loop email, uh, we have the links to the readings there every week. And just click on that uh, Titus and get the overview and listen to that, and that's helpful as well. So if Paul is not condoning slavery, what is he doing here? And how is it relevant to us? What is there for us? What is Paul saying? Paul's saying something that's very important to us today, and this is what he's saying. He's saying, your life situation... Your life situation is not an excuse not to live a godly life. Your life situation, wherever you find yourself, whatever may be going on, whatever may have happened in your life, is not an excuse not to live a godly life. Or to put it a different way, the things that have happened to you or the things that happened to you in life do not excuse or do not give you permission to live an ungodly life or to forsake character and witness. It's not an excuse because all of us at times will be able to come up with excuses to justify ungodly actions. We're just that way. We can all at times justify ourselves in the actions we take. Paul's saying that even in difficult situations, when you have little autonomy and you are under authority, you have a responsibility to represent Christ in your character and in your witness. Every place that you are, no matter how difficult the situation, you have not only the opportunity, I believe Paul is saying, the responsibility to represent Christ with your Christian character and witness. We can all come up with places where we feel like we got the short end of the stick. Try and justify acting in a different way. Maybe, sure, you look at this passage and say, well, I'm not in a bond servant situation. But maybe you've had a bad marriage or something that happened in your marriage. Maybe you've had a bad boss. Maybe you had something else go on in your life, in your childhood, someone that hurts you, not denying the realities have happened. That's not what we're talking about here. So these things really happen. These things really cause pain. The question is how we react and respond to them. And sometimes we can be tempted to justify ungodly actions and ungodly character because of what has happened to us. Paul is saying, no matter what your station in life, no matter what has happened, You have the responsibility to live a life of godly character and witness. There's not a person in this room who hasn't at some point thought that they got the short end of the stick. We all at some point think we have a reason to pout, to vent, to not live by the rules. We all at some point will try and make an excuse for ourselves. I mean, take something as simple as driving. Something as simple as driving, and many of us would say, Oh, yeah, you should not text and drive. That's awful. That's so dangerous. You should never do that. And you should never look at your phone and read a text while you're driving. And we believe that and we think that. And all of a sudden we find, well, I have to look at this because I'm going here and I need to know. And we will excuse behavior in ourselves that we at times will condemn in others. We have an amazing capacity 
to justify our own actions. Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't look at your life situation as a reason to live an ungodly life, to live a life that is not of good character and godly conduct. What does this look like? Someone shot me a video early this. Someone sent me a video early this week. I thought that is a great capture, quick capture of what this looks like. Someone put in a situation that's not only difficult, even life-threatening, and yet does not use it as an excuse to not exercise godly character. Uh, take a look at this, this quick two-minute You're watching Action News Live at 10. A woman about to be mugged in the parking lot of a Walmart turned things around on her would-be attacker. Without a gun, without pepper spray, she protected herself. I was lucky enough to meet Pauline Jacoby in Dyersburg. She told me about the powerful words that saved her and could possibly save her attacker, too. I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins. 92-year-old Pauline Jacoby reads her Bible every day. Her strong faith keeps her going in life and in the process may have saved it. Jacoby had just finished putting away her groceries inside her car at a nearby Walmart. Only seconds after Jacoby got into her car, a man jumped in the passenger side. The man told Jacoby he had a gun and that he would shoot her if she didn't give him money. I said, no, I'm not going to give him my money. Jacoby told him no three times. Then she started to talk to him. You know, as quick as you kill me, I'll go to heaven and you go to hell. She told him to ask God for forgiveness. I said, Jesus is in this car and he goes with me everywhere I go. And uh, <laughs> he just sort of looked around and the tears began coming in his eyes. Jacoby ministered the man for 10 minutes inside her car. And he says, I, I think I'll go home and pray tonight. I said, you don't have to wait tonight. You can just pray anytime you want to. As tears were rolling down the man's face, Jacoby voluntarily gave him all the money she had, $10. And when I told him I was going to get him the money, I said, don't you spend it on whiskey either. <laughs> the man thanked her for the money and then... He kissed me on the cheek. <laughs> and walked away. Your life situation is not an excuse to live not according to godly character. No matter what situation you find yourself in, we are called to be people of Christian character and witness. And I thought, what a great example of that. I don't know what you would. Have, I don't know what I would have done in that situation. I hope I would act like Pauline. I mean, that's that's a great example. The other, the other thing, not only is your life uh, situation not an excuse for uh, living an ungodly character because, of, uh, because we all have situations that we could easily justify our actions, but the other thing is it's no excuse uh, because we are responsible to a higher master. We're responsible to a higher master, and that is Jesus Christ. It's true in all our situations in life, but let me just apply it to a work situation, to an appointment situation for a minute. You do not only ultimately and you do not only and ultimately work for the person whose name is at the bottom right-hand corner of your paycheck. 
As a Christian, you have a dual employment. You do work for that person whose name is at the bottom right of your paycheck, but not only and ultimately for that person. And the reason you don't steal at work is not simply because you're afraid that you're going to get caught by your boss, but because you also and ultimately work for God. And in that capacity, he expects honesty in character, and he has tasked you with the making of truth of God attractive for those you work for. In fact, the passage says that. If you put that passage back up for a second, John, from Titus chapter 2, the passage says this right at the end, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The word adorn, some translations will have attractive. It, it, it can be decorate. It can be furnish a table, trim a light so it burns pure and right. It is this idea that you are living such a life, and I am living such a life, that the people around you, even the people you work for, even the people who may be harsh to you, will look at the way you're living your life, and there will be no argument against you because you are living a life of such upright integrity and truthfulness that they will have to recognize the difference that's going on that's in your life. And so you have a responsibility, not just an opportunity, but a responsibility. You are a representative. Companies these days are very conscious of image and reputation. One bad tweet, one bad review can do months, even years of damage to a company. So maybe you go on a business trip for your company. They may take the time to remind you that you, as you are there, you are representing the company there. We might not have a physical plant in that country you are visiting yet. We might not have a factory there in that place. There may not be name recognition, and therefore you are the company. Think of it this way. Maybe you work for a big company that wants to open up a plant in a foreign country They have sent you as their representative. The way you talk, the way you do business, the way you carry yourself is all they know about your company. Or maybe think of it on a more local level. Maybe there's a developer that wants to come into your town. They want to build a business. They want to open up a business. They want to build a a community that's in there. And from a distance, many people are against it. And so what will that developer do? They'll come to the next town meeting. And their faith, they'll show up and they'll share because they represent that development, and you will make a decision on that person, and you will make a decision based on that in the same way. From a distance, many people may be against Christianity or God, and you may be there, sent as a representative of the company, representing Christ in that place. And here's what Paul's saying. Look, the island of Crete, there aren't a lot of Christians there. There's barely a a believing community that's there. And our goal is to get this message out. And so you, in that place, represent Christianity to the people around you. You represent it to your master. You represent it to your boss. You represent it in that place. You are Christianity to them. The way you act, the way you live, will determine how they make their decisions about who God is and who Jesus is. We often think uh, is that if I want to, I want to just go one verse further in this passage, which we'll talk about more next week. But looking at verse 11 in this passage, the very next verse says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
If I just gave you that verse and you didn't realize what came before it, I would read that and say, yeah, for every person, no matter what class of society they are, no matter how far down society has pushed them, no matter how far of an outcast they are, the grace of God is available to all people. But if you look at it in the context of the verses that just came before it, and if we don't separate it, it's actually saying the opposite. It's actually saying it's not just for the outcast of society. It's even for the one who society has elevated and is serving in high positions and their masters over these slaves. And the grace of God is available to them too. And sometimes we don't think of it that way. This is the great inversion or reversal that often presents itself in Christianity. Jesus teaches that the first will be last and the last will be first. He he says that the greatest among you will be the greatest servant. And here we have another kind of great inversion or reversal of the way things might seem. It might seem in the natural that the master is above the servant, that the boss is above and in a better situation than the employee, but Paul is saying it is the servant and the employee who is really free and is in a better position spiritually than the person over them, but it is not to be lorded over them or gloated about, but rather in humility and love, share the love of Jesus with them because that master, that boss, that CEO also deserves to hear that Jesus died for them and that Jesus loves them. It's the great inversion of Christianity that it is the one in this world that often looks in bondage that's really the freest. It's the one in this world that often can look like they are in the worst position and station in life that is first in the kingdom of God. And so God calls them. He says, don't, you, don't, don't use your station in life as an excuse to not live a godly life. You are called to live a Christian life of character and conduct. And so while you're waiting, while you're waiting for Jesus to come, while you're waiting to see God face to face. Don't make excuses for excusing godly character. Don't look at your life situation and make an excuse to not live a life of Christian character and conduct. Close with this story. I think I've shared this in the past, but it seems to fit really well today. It's a story that happens outside the city of Cairo. And the city of Cairo has a unique version of poverty called Garbage City. Each morning at dawn, 7,000 garbage collectors on horse carts leave for Cairo. They collect the garbage left behind by the city's 7 million citizens. After their day's work, they return to Garbage City, bringing the trash back to their homes, sorting out what's useful. In Muslim countries, there are certain religious restrictions on sifting through refuse. So the inhabitants of Garbage City are either non-religious or from Christian heritage. These are the poorest of the poor, the outcasts among the outcasts. In 1972, a young Egyptian businessman lost his wristwatch 
valued at roughly $11,000. As you can imagine, it would have been unthinkable to have a valuable timepiece returned by a member of Garbage City. Yet an old garbage man dressed in rags found the man's name on the watch and returned it saying this, My Christ told me to be honest until death. Because of the garbage man's act of obedience, the Egyptian businessman told, later told a reporter, I didn't know Christ at the time, but I told the garbage man that I saw Christ in him. I told him, because of what you have done and your great example, I will worship the Christ you are worshiping. The businessman, true to his word, studied the Bible, grew in his faith, Soon he and his wife began ministering to Egypt's physically and spiritually poor. And in 1978, he was ordained by the Coptic Orthodox Church and now leads a church that meets outside Garbage City. This poor man, who was in every way inferior to the businessman by the standards of this world, except in the place that's most important, In what matters most, he was vastly superior. And he was generous with that. And he gave what he had. The poor man knew that no matter what his life situation is, he ultimately served the God of the universe. No matter how much injustice he had faced in life, he knew that his hope was not in this world, but in the next and that he had eternal freedom in Christ. So in spite of a million excuses to abandon good character, this man displayed godly character, which not only reflected well on him, but ultimately reflected well on Christ. Your life situation is not an excuse for forsaking Christian character and witness. No matter who has a say over your life today, you serve the one who has the last word. As he went to the cross, Jesus was submissive because he knew his actions reflected upon his father. So he was able to endure injustices for the sake of the kingdom. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says it this way, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In that passage, we are called to set aside the things in this world that may take us off that path of godly conduct and witness, to follow the example of Christ in line with and in light of, but also empowered by Christ within us. We'll talk next week as we look at verses 11 through 15 that this is not accomplished in your own strength or in my own strength. The carrying out of this, the living of a godly life, the the living of a life of, of godly conduct and witness is carried out because of the grace of God that you and I have received and the grace of God that continues to sustain us in life. You can't do it in your own strength. Pauline doesn't talk to that attacker in her own strength. This man doesn't return the watch in his own strength. And you don't serve and live a life of godly character in your own strength. It is by, in light of, and in line with 
the grace of God. Ask our music ministry to return as we prepare for a time of response to God's word. As we do, I'd ask you this question. Where are you tempted to justify sacrificing your Christian character and witness due to a life situation you find less than ideal? Where is it? As we come to this time of response, we're going to have our, <clears throat> our elders will be up front and available for prayer. These altars will be open for you to pray. And we're, I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives and speaking and leading to us. So where is it in your life? Maybe it's not a work situation or maybe it is. Where you are tempted to save and the way they treated me, the things that happened to me, if you only knew what happened to me, if you only knew what went on in my life, if you, if you only knew, then you'd just, you know, you'd be fine with me acting the way I'm acting. You wouldn't call me. God can't expect me to live that godly life of Christian character and conduct. And I believe by Paul writing to Titus about slaves, he was essentially saying, no one has an excuse for not living a life of Christian character and witness. Because if Paul will talk to people in society who are considered property and tell them even you have a responsibility to live a life of godly character and witness, then I believe he would say to every one of us that no matter what has happened, no matter what has been done to you, no matter what has has happened in your life and in your family, God is calling you and empowering you to live a life of character and witness for him. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and as you do, we're going to prepare to respond to God's word. Your response can be any number of things. You might come forward. There's people here who will pray with you and for you. Maybe you want to come and spend some time just kneeling at these altars and others will come and just lay a hand on your shoulder and pray over you. We'll pray with you. We're going to sing and respond to God's word. And as we do, I want us to look at places in our lives. Would you just be open to the Holy Spirit speaking to you and maybe a place in your life? Because here's the thing with these places. Often they're places that we have so shut the door on so hard that we don't even recognize it's a place that God wants to work in. Because it's a place where the hurt seems so justified that we don't even recognize that God still needs to do a work in that place in our life. And so I ask you to be open to the Holy Spirit leading you and guiding you as God calls us to set aside our excuses and to live in every area in conduct and witness for him. Lord, would you right now, by your spirit, lead us. God, would you do now what only you and your word and your spirit can do? Would you do what no man or woman has the right to do? Which is speak to our hearts and call us out in those places where we have justified actions other than living completely sold out for you. Lord, would you identify those places, do your healing work, and strengthen us to live for you. We come to you, responding to your word. In Jesus' name.